we've come to the end of the summer, dare I say, and uh, we've been talking about the love of God. And uh, we've talked about many, many facets of the love of God. And I challenged you last week, actually I've challenged you a couple of weeks in a row, to um, see if there might be something that God wants you to share with us about the implications, the implications for you of God's love for you. And so um, I'm just going to leave the mic open here for those who want to share about what that means to them and the implications. I know that there's a few people that have prepared, so don't hesitate. And of course, I have something to share. Don't be alarmed, it looks long. It's not as long as it was. <laughs> There's also a lot of I and me in here. It's not because I'm selfish. It could apply to you as well. Psalm 139 tells us that he knows me, yet he loves me. I am never outside his loving gaze. He made me with special care to be exactly who I am. He has a custom-made plan for my life. I am always on his mind. I long to be just like my creator. I have a sin that so easily besets me. It wouldn't seem like a big deal to you but it is to me, and it is to God. I have found in many places of God's word that he doesn't like it. So I have learned these scriptures. I have prayed about it. I have tried to fight it. But still, I feel awful when I can commit this sin. I condemn myself. It takes days for me to get over it. I have a hard time moving on. It seems to me that there should be more to this act of repenting. It seems to me that I should have to pay a penance for it somehow. It comes down to this one thing. Do I, or do I not, trust God's grace, faithfulness, and love? Is Jesus' sacrifice for me enough? Is there something more he has to do when I disobey? Hebrews 10, verses 10 to 25, talks about how the Old Testament priests had to offer up sin sacrifices regularly, first for themselves and then for the congregation. Then Jesus came to offer himself as the sin sacrifice once for all. He finished it. It only took the one offering. There is nothing more for him to do. This is God's love. I sometimes think I am getting better, so I relax the diligence, and wham, there I go again. God knows this. He loves me anyway. I can't do it myself. It's only by faith in Jesus that I have any hope of success at all. God has put his spirit in me to teach me and lead me into the path and plan he has prepared for me. He wants me to succeed, 
He wants me to love him back and follow his plan. I can trust that it is a good plan, and I can work with him to make it happen only by obeying his spirit's voice. There is only one thing to do when I give in to, my, to any sin. Ask our loving God for mercy and forgiveness. Once again, ask for a clean heart and restoration. I find Psalm 51 is a good place to start, and then go to Psalm 32. This reminds me how to pick up the pieces and start again. Our God cannot give up on us. It is not in his character. He cannot stop loving us. God is love. Never ending, never failing affection. He celebrates, sings, shouts with pleasure over me. God makes no distinction between people. He loves all in the same way. God knows I will fail. He knows I will sin. He loves me anyway. <coughs> he doesn't need me, but he knows I need him. He chooses to use me in his service, even though he could do the work himself much more effectively and efficiently. He who is love, he doesn't have it, he is, loves me forever. He is from everlasting to everlasting and loves me that long. Time does not affect him or his love for me. He has it in unlimited supply. God cannot change, so his love cannot change. God is wise. He has a wise and wonderful plan for each of us. Nothing surprises him. Nothing takes him off guard. I always find this such an encouragement to me. God possesses supreme power. He is God of all things. That is why there is nothing that can separate us from his love. He can make things work out for us because everything is under his control. He can change us and lead us. God is faithful. He is loyal and dependable. We can trust him with our life and death. We can trust him to work his plan out for us. I think this is where discipline comes in. He is faithful to bring us back into the right track in whatever way he knows we will respond to. He is in all places at all times. There is no place I can go that he is not there. And the best part of this is, even though he's with me all the time, he is also with everyone else at all times. No one needs to feel left out and neglected because he is in all places at all times. He is right and fair. This is why he sent Jesus to the cross. Someone had to pay the price, and we had no hope of that at all. If this isn't love, there's no such thing. God is merciful. He is compassionate. He knows who and what we are. He made me who I am and is making me into who I can be. He will never give up on me. He never turns his back on me in anger or frustration. God gives me love even though I don't deserve it. He loves me in spite of my failures. When I asked him what forgiveness was, what it looks like in practical terms, he said as if it never happened. This is how he forgives us 
and requires us to extend this to others. God is holy. He is perfect. There is no flaw in his being. That is why this whole thing is so overwhelming. He is awe-inspiring, can be frightening, and beyond natural belief. It takes his spirit to believe. He commands absolute adoration and respect. What love he has for us. It never ends or changes. This God, the one true God, is a powerful, awesome, holy God who deserves all our worship, praise, honor, adoration. He also deserves our love and obedience. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the delightfulness of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Anyways, I was thinking about or praying about what I might share today and what kept coming to mind was just John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that is really the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. And then this morning I, I read this that I just thought I'd share with you from the book If, trading your if-only regrets for God's what-if possibilities. This little section is called The Barter King. I recently came across a rather interesting reality show, Barter Kings. It's all about trading something of lesser value for something of greater value. Do it enough times and you might just end up with something of significant value. Start with a toaster, for example, and trade it for a used bike. Then trade the used bike for a microwave. Trade the microwave for airplane passes. The airplane passes for a horse. The horse for a used car and the used car for jet skis. Voila! The show tracks those trading strings and it's full of twists and turns. One of the most infamous trading strings involved a Canadian blogger, Kyle McDonald, who started with one red paperclip and what if. It took nearly a year and 14 very random transactions, which included a hand-sculpted doorknob, a KISS motorized snow globe, and a roll in a film. By the time he was done, the red paperclip was bartered all the way to a two-story farmhouse in Kipling, Saskatchewan. <laughs> Pretty crazy, but not as crazy as the gospel. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the deal the barter king puts on the table. You trade all your, of your sin for all of my righteousness, and we'll call it even. You'll never get a better barter, and that's why it's called the good news. Salvation is the trade-up. The trade-off is giving full veto power to the Holy Spirit. But once again, that's a good obligation. He'll take you places you can't go. He'll set up divine appointments with people you can't meet. And he'll do all things in you, through you, that are impossible. As I started the series, um, 
back in June on the love of God, I told you that I had selfish motives because I doubted the love of God for me. It's a sad thing for a pastor to say, but there it is. But it's good to be honest, right? So what is my takeaway from this series on the love of God? Well, this is it. God's love for me is and never has been in question. The implication for me is profound. If there are two parties in a relationship and one person's love is unquestioned, certain, true, but the other still distrusts or doubts that love, whose problem is it? Of course, it's the problem of the one who doubts. So having been presented this summer with the scriptural slam dunk that God does love me, I am forced to accept that I am the problem, not God. If I feel unloved, God is not making me feel that way. I am. If I feel unworthy, God isn't making me feel that way. I am. If I'm feeling anxious, God isn't making me feel that way. I am. If I feel guilty, God isn't making me feel guilty. I am. If I feel inadequate, God isn't making me feel that way. I am. If I feel like a fraud, God isn't making me feel that way. I am. If I feel like a failure, God isn't making me feel that way. I am. If I feel condemned, God isn't making me feel that. I am. If God's love for me is without question, I am the source of all of these nagging feelings that I have. So how does this truth make me feel? Relieved. Think about it. If your life is spent trying to appease or make up for to accommodate a God who, who you see as love is conditional, who's constantly displeased, always judging, but then you finally realize that he isn't displeased and he isn't judging and he isn't condemning. Quite the contrary, actually, that he loves you unconditionally, that there's nothing you can do to forfeit his great love for you, the pressure is off. So I feel relieved and I feel freedom. Freedom from the need to measure up. Freedom from the constant frustration of failure. Freedom from the nagging weariness of fruitless effort. Because I do mess up constantly. But that doesn't change God's love for me. Another thing I feel is secure. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, he sees me as righteous. He sees me as flawless. I'm good with God. And God is good with me. And it's not based on anything that I've done. Thank God. The last thing that I feel is I feel like a child. Learning how to process and rethink my feelings 
Because these feelings of failure and anxiety, of condemnation, these feelings of being unloved and unworthy, of feeling guilty and inadequate, feeling fraudulent, all of those feelings to me are not just sort of passing whimsies. To me, they're almost biological. <laughs> I get a gut feeling. And so as a child, I'm learning how to process and rethink those feelings. So when they come along, I say, that's not God. That's me. So rather than this truth making me feel like I have a free pass to do whatever I want, it does quite the opposite. It makes me want to invest in my relationship with God, to go deeper and to be more intimate with Him. Why wouldn't I want to explore the depth of this love? I have a really weird passage of Scripture to share with you. I'm quite sure that you've never heard this Scripture in church spoken about or taught. It's from Ecclesiastes. At first blush, it won't even seem right. But here it is. Solomon is the guy who wrote this. He wrote kind of a dissertation on the meaninglessness of life. I'll get to that in a second. In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do, do not be over-righteous. Neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and don't be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Weird, eh? That can't be from the Bible. Can that be inspired of God? It's a strange passage of Scripture. So, here's Solomon, the wisest man who ever walked the face of the earth. And he's reflecting on the meaninglessness of life. I don't want you to despair. Because what he means by that is, if you try to make sense of this life with reasoning, it's meaningless. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Good people suffer. Nasty, evil people thrive. It doesn't make sense. But then he suggests something really sacrilegious, I think, maybe even heretical. Don't overdo being righteous, and don't overdo being wicked. Can that be from God? How can this be inspired? Well, firstly, having read Ecclesiastes and understanding the breadth of it, I want you to know he's not recommending doing everything in moderation. <laughs> do a little sin, do a little righteous act, do a little sin, do a little, and that's good. No, he's not recommending that. He is, however, suggesting that if you fear, and that word is weird because we misunderstand it, but if you honor and acknowledge and love and esteem God as your Lord, you're going to avoid the error of extremes. 
And the idea here is that if you allow God to be the Lord of your life, you'll not pursue sin and its temptations with all of your heart. And this is the hard part. If you allow God to be the Lord of your life, you will not pursue righteousness with all of your heart. Ooh, you're on thin ice, Timmy. But he's talking about the righteous acts, right? He's talking about the stuff that we do, we think earns the favor of God. And he's saying it's just as much an error to be sinful and pursue selfishness as it is to try to be self-righteous and perfect. And the reason is, it's only in the fear of God. It's only in the love of God. It's only in the acknowledgement that God is in control and that our righteousness comes from Him and Him alone. It's only in that that we take comfort and find the balance of life. And there's an acknowledgement that you're going to sin. <laughs> but don't pursue it with all your heart. You know? And you're going to do righteous acts, I hope. But if you start thinking that your righteous acts are making a difference in God's love and acceptance of you, you've gone the wrong way. You've blown it. <laughs> so neither sin nor self-righteousness can bring about meaning to life. Only completely relying on God, His grace. Only trusting in His unconditional love. Only believing in His willingness to forgive. Only abandoning the belief that anything I am capable of doing will bring meaning to life. Will give my life ultimate meaning and purpose. All of my life, I've been extreme. All of my life, I've been extreme in pursuing righteousness. The error was in thinking that what I did made the difference. And that's never been the truth. It's only what Christ did that makes the difference. I hear Jesus say, stop trying to win my favor. You're wasting your time. I love you. And my love for you is not affected by your efforts to be good. And now I'll quote Solomon again. And hopefully you'll hear it in a different way. So don't be over-righteous. Neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Relax. God loves you. Next week we're going to start a um, series on covenant. Covenant. That God would enter into covenant with us because of his love for us and uh, yeah so yeah we'll just keep just keep going keep learning and keep um, falling in love with God let's close in prayer dear Heavenly Father I thank you for this time of sharing and thank you for what you're doing Lord help us to be people who um, don't just let things go in one ear and out the other but let the truths that we learn change us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us 
to accept your leading and your guiding by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you to those who shared, and uh, have a great day.